Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm enjoying the summer. It's great to uh, to learn and grow and think about things. As much as we can, anyway. It's not like we can go outside all that much, but... As somebody who's very indoorsy and can't stand this heat, I'm not complaining all that much. I'm really enjoying the the isolation and the opportunities to, like you said, do some learning. It's really good. But yeah, anything we want to discuss briefly. Oh, man. So last night, Derek, I think yeah. it was last night or the day before where we started getting some, getting some of these articles from the August Enzyme. Did you get a chance to uh, peep any of those? Yes, I skimmed most of the ones that relate to sexuality, chastity, or LGBT people. Mm. And I got a couple of questions about that, Derek. Uh, First of all, what were your initial impressions of what you had read? And uh, the question I want to get to next is, why do you think the church is focusing so much on this right now? Well, some of my initial impressions are that they still haven't quite obviously gotten where they need to be on LGBT issues. I think there are a few glimpses of something they, they got right. They want to de-shame the community. One of the articles talked about that whole um, the chewed gum analogy and the lick, licked cupcake analogy. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what yeah. you're talking about. They, they tell people don't use those, you know, and to Very decouple... Good. Talk, talking about sexual predators, decouple that conversation with your kids from healthy sexuality because we don't want the kids to be afraid of sex and we don't want them right. to be ashamed. And there, there are a few places where it's good, but then you've got some stories, especially the one where someone who's suffering with same-sex attraction, which he's not doing it right if he's suffering, <laughs> um, someone who uh, whose story is there, and I'm, I fear that his story is going to get weaponized by people saying, well, look, if this homo can do it, you can do it too. They, mm-hmm. would, they would tell that to their kids. Mm-hmm. Here's one thing that I, was, that I really realized, that our leaders, our prophets and apostles in 70s and our general authorities, they're raised up within, from among us, from our communities. We train them, we educate them, we're the ones that, that pass on these things and so we raise them up and there's a sense in which we raise them up in order to be called by God and prepared to be called by God and so essentially what we're doing is we're sending these people to Salt Lake to fight for us and to be on our side and they're not doing that for LGBTs. No one has really said it this way. I mean, I realize that they're not democratic representatives in a you know a representative democracy, but there still is a sense that they should be from us, and be, and they are fortunate enough to be in a position of voice and power, and they're raised up from among us, and they should have a loyalty to what's best for us and to listen to us, and fight for us we send them to salt lake to fight for us and they're not doing that Mm -hmm. what were your reactions to these articles you know the first one i read was uh that one you were talking about with the oh this homo could do it so y'all can do it too yeah i see this story a lot in the black community especially i always see people looking to devour a fictionalized version of what it's like to be black in america and as soon as i read that particular story You know, I don't want to invalidate that young man's experience because for the most part, he doesn't actually directly address this particular issue of wrestling with his feelings as a gay man who wants things like companionship, who wants things like a family. And that conversation, there's not a lot of 
time spent on that, but time spent on this is my experience. This is what God is doing for me. He has given me the strength to live the law of chastity. And what it does, what the article did was a couple of things. One, it, it equated LGBTQ celibacy with the law of chastity. And that is just one more thing we don't need for LGBTQs in the church is, you know, once again, getting this misguided idea that somehow gay celibacy is a requirement to keep the law of chastity. And I just cannot buy that. If that's what any gay person wants to do, I will happily support them in that. I'll be like, you know, you live your truth. If you feel like that's what you got to do, by all means do it. But I really don't like anything that so much as implies that this is the requirement for gay members of the church. Um, I was thinking specifically about faithful gay members I know who would love to have somebody, but because of how articles like this are weaponized, they will be told, no, you can't do this. And others like uh, those gay folks in the church will think that there's not really a place here for them. I would really like to see the church give voice to somebody like you, Derek. I want to see somebody who's making it work, but somebody who is a little bit more forthcoming about their wrestle with a culture that tells them they can't have anybody while there actually isn't any real scriptural basis for telling a gay person that they got to be alone. I don't want to see these words of faithful gay mm -hmm. Latter-day Saints whose experiences are more than valid to be weaponized against other gay Latter-day Saints whose experiences are equally valid, but they just don't agree. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think this gets to, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but it's this concept of survivorship bias. And when we look at what this dude said, he said, look, I read my scriptures, I prayed, and I feel okay about being in the church and being celibate and all this other stuff. Now, now yeah, that worked for you, but think about all those people for whom that did not work, and their essays did not get in the enzyme. Correct. We're only sampling a very, very small biased selection of voices. Mm -hmm. Something I wrote wouldn't make it into the enzyme. Correct. Even though I am just as committed to the church and to sustaining the prophets and living the, the, the commandments, the difference is that my brain isn't colonized the way his is. Mm. That's the only difference. Like, we're still living the same standards. We're still doing all this, you know, we still are, have faith in church. But my I'm not colonized by all of this cultural and social homophobia that has crept into the church without God's authority. I just want to see the church normalize the conversation around sex in mm -hmm. a positive mm -hmm. and healthy way. That is what I'm hoping for as I uh, read through this. And, you know, I think the mere fact of the publication of these articles should give us some hope, and it's kind of backwards. But what that means is... There's certain editors at the Enzyme that realize that they need to get out in front of this because they're losing. And they want to influence the readership of the church because they realize that, that there, there's a mass of inertia that's in the direction of equality and liberation and our full humanity. It's hard mm -hmm. to get to know us and deny our full humanity, which is exactly the question that the law of chastity and celibacy, all that revolves around is the question, are we fully human and do we deserve to have a full human life just like straight people? Right. And that's the only question you really need to ask because mm -hmm. if you say yes, then there's full equality. If you say no, that we're not fully human, you can do anything you want to us, including kill us because, mm -hmm. and of course that's what the Nazis did to us. But that's the only question you really need to ask. Are we fully human? And that will change how you 
wrestle with the law of chastity because if you realize that we're human, you realize that our relationships, gay relationships, are just as chaste and just as holy and just as beautiful and just as loving as straight relationships. There's no difference ethically or morally. There's only an artificial and arbitrary division that's based in nothing other than people's own prejudice and what their view of the prettiness of the world is. Like, their world is pretty with no gay people in it. And I'm like, mm -hmm. the world's not going to go back to that kind of pretty anymore. Right. And so right. I, but, but the the fact that they're trying to, in, this artic, in, in these articles, push back against this shows us that change is on, on the move. Correct. Right? You wouldn't have had articles like this in the 60s or 70s. There was no need for them because right. there wasn't a groundswell of, of support for LGBTs in the church like there is now. And so they're right. trying to get ahead of that. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, no. But imagine, imagine in the year 2020 if we had articles in the Enzyme that came out that treated black people the way that these articles treat LGBTs. How would you feel? Oh, I'd be angry, like no question. I, I mean, I deal with this now even though the church hasn't done this, I still deal with this on a regular basis. And I've dealt with it a lot since the killings of George Floyd, Beyonce, mm -hmm. Ta Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, Ahmaud Arbery. I've dealt with people trying to like use other black voices and think pieces and other unrepresented, uh, other unrepresentative samples of the black population to deny me my full humanity. If the church did something like that, I'd be pissed, like point blank. I would not want the church to try to, in essence, be getting ahead of, because that's what this particular issue of the August Enzyme feels like. It feels like a desperate attempt to get out, of, to get ahead of something that is already coming, and I don't think they can mm -hmm. stop it. To get back to your particular question, I would be angry primarily because I know what these articles are trying to do, and what they're trying to do is what exactly you just said, deny the full expression of my humanity because of something that I cannot control. I don't know how I would deal with that, yeah. honestly. Um, I'd have to think about that a little bit more, but I think my anger would be valid. It would be indignation. Yeah, so tell me if that happened, hypothetically, if 20, in 2020 articles like this came out about black people, what would you want your white friends to do about it? I would want them to speak up. Like I wouldn't want them to say, oh, sucks for you. Like, sorry about it, but... This is what this is one of my biggest issues with allyship and something I make an effort to do in my own allyship. I'm somebody who can acknowledge the wrongfulness of inhumane acts that happen or are perpetuated against other people, but I'm not going to leave it at that. I will acknowledge the pain and I will do something about it. I will say something about it. This is what I would want from this is what I would want from allies. This is what I would want from people who are not black. I would want them to push back against something like this. Mm -hmm. I would want them to mm -hmm. say, this is not valid. This is not who we are as a people, as a church. This doesn't have, this doesn't feel like, and it doesn't come from God. You know what I'm saying? That is what, that's what I would want people to do. You know, let me just say one last thing about these articles, because I haven't read them all in detail. I'll probably have a response to them in detail later. But when you go through these articles, something is very clear is that they, they know that they don't have answers. The only thing that they know that they know or they claim to know is two things. One, no gay sex, and two, no gay marriage. That's all they know. Other than that, they don't even claim to know anything. 
they don't know what gay people should do or shouldn't do beyond those two things. They, they have, don't even know why no gay sex, yeah, no gay marriage. Yeah, they have they, no they grounding for this. They have no um, no path for what or example or model of what someone in the church should do. In part because it's all they've got it all tied in with straight marriage and exaltation and all these prerequisites. So they can't even really. They don't know what to do. So it's very clear when you look at all of these articles combined, the the weight of all of the testimony of these articles is that they don't know what they're do- talking about. And mm-hmm. they, they're they basically in a holding pattern. They're saying, we don't know. And other than no gay sex and no gay marriage, they don't even claim to know. So this isn't the behavior of someone who has a fresh insight and a, a ground, you know, breaking new ground, some like really amazing... Uh, you know, thing that just revolutionizes our understanding. Like, if we have prophets and apostles, they should give us some revolutionary things from time to time and say, look, I've got this cool insight that actually solves the problem. They don't do any of that, and they don't even claim to do that. So you can very clearly see, reading between the lines, that their whole project fails in trying to keep us down. That's really interesting you say that. That last piece in particular that uh, prophets, even though we don't have that experience of receiving revolutionary information that solves a problem right now, we actually mm-hmm. had that happening in our Come Follow Me lesson this uh, this particular week. Mm-hmm. And I want to, and I will want to take a moment to lift that up right. once we get there. Right. But uh, I'm just really glad you brought that out because we have a lot of parallels we can draw between uh, what happened with uh, Alman and son Koryantin and what's happening right now with people who mm-hmm. really crave a new knowledge that will move us forward but they don't really have it and they don't really know where to seek it. Yeah, so there's no breakthroughs in in this enzyme. Even if you're if you even if you're on the anti-gay side and really believe it, you can't look at the enzyme and say they they've actually solved anything or had any really great breakthroughs even in their direction. Correct. It's just uh, they they shouldn't have published it all at all unless they have a breakthrough. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you for sharing that. Anything else from the uh, issue that you want to bring up before we move into the come follow me? No, that's it. All right. Then before we move into the Come Follow Me, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So this week's Come Follow Me, we are in the book of Alma, chapter 39 through 42. This is the last of the, uh, well, these are the last chapters we have for a while before we just get into a bunch of wars and stuff. And that'll be new conversation. Derek just made a face. (laughs) Um, But what we have in these particular three chapters is Alma's words to Corianton. Corianton got four chapters. Is there any literary or historical or theological context you want to give these words before we uh, dive into the content? No, I think we'll get to it other than to say we have to realize that this is a um, message from a father to a son at a specific time and specific place. And everything he says is geared towards repairing the, uh, the, the son, right? These things weren't given to give some larger speculative random facts that you might be curious about it's really all for the purpose of crafting the repentance of his son Corianton 
which I find very interesting considering all the information and all the doctrine that we have that is unique to us as a church in these chapters. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Derek, I think, do you have something to say before we get to 11 through 12? Because that's where I'm starting. Well, I have, let's go ahead and, and, and cover what you're going to cover. And then I will go and I'm going to have, I have a larger section that covers, um, well, no, let's actually cover this idea of, of the sin uh, next to murder, which we, is a little bit before. All right. Sounds good. And a lot of people have used this to say that sexual sin is above all sins, save it being the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. This is this, whatever it was that Coriandon did, is the most abominable of all sins. And I think that what most people go to is saying, well, Coriandon did something sexual, and that's the sin next to murder and, and denying the Holy Ghost. But when you actually look at the text very carefully, this encounter with the sex worker Isabel might not have been about sex primarily, or it might not have been about literal sex at all. And we should remind people that it is a long-standing tool of the patriarchy to criticize a woman by accusing her of sexual depravity in some way or another. Just think about all the cultural insults that we have for women in our day. Many of them, I'm not going to name them right here, but you know the ones I'm talking about, they have to do with accusing her of something sexual. And for a biblical example of this, let's look at the sex worker that is used as a metaphor for the wickedness of Rome in Revelation 17. So we've got, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then there's also Hosea. In the very first opening lines of Hosea, you've got Hosea portraying Israel as a sex worker and and then an adulterous wife because Israel turned away from God. So we see how these metaphors have been used in patriarchal cultures when they don't even have literally have to do with sex work. But people, especially women, get called a sex worker when they lead people away and when they do all these other things. So where I'm going with this is that the, the text, like I said, doesn't explicitly say that Coriant and, and Isabel had sex. Now, I also want to add that Isabel is one of the three named non-biblical women in the Book of Mormon. We also have Abish and Sariah. That's all the, th- the three named women we have. Hmm. Um, well, there's Eve and Mary, but, but among the— that, are actually, that actually make appearances in yeah. the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So the named non-biblical women, Isabel is going to be the last one we have in the Book of Mormon. And I'm wondering, why was it so important to name her— why did Alma need to name her? And I think it gets back to sort of what I was saying, that there's something well-known about her. Maybe she would have been a charismatic religious leader leading people away, and that being called a sex worker may be an extended metaphor for this. And she may not have literally been a sex worker at all, just like a lot of the women, like... AOC was called some nasty names recently by a fellow congressman, like, and she's not literally those things, right? So Mm -hmm. this happens all the time in the rhetoric of a patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. So what I'm getting at is, and Michael Ash wrote wrote an article about this, it may be that the real sin that's next to murder is leading people away and getting them to have a spiritual death of their testimonies. Well, well. And then that's actually 
makes a lot of sense as to being next to murder because sexual sins that's what the atonement is for i hate to say that because it sounds like like it sounds like an endorsement but it's not it's not it's not it's an endorsement of the atonement it's not an endorsement of sexual sin but sexual sin isn't the worst thing in the world i you know we have to put it in perspective i i think um also, this perspective is coming from this is literally something that Alma spent a lot of his life doing prior to his own conversion, which is probably why he feels so strongly right. about sitting Corianton down and having a conversation about this. Yeah. So then, so then let's um, let's get into what you had to say on verses eleven and twelve. The things that stood out to me here are a couple of sentences that Alma says to his uh, son, namely that this great iniquity that Corianton committed was so much that when they saw the Zoramites, he means, when they saw his conduct, they would not believe in Alma's words. That was the first thing I wanted to come across. And then the second thing I came across was in verse 12, where it said, command thy children, this is what the uh, Spirit said to Alma, command thy children to do good, lest they lead away the hearts of many people to destruction. Therefore, I command you, my son, in the fear of God, that you refrain from your iniquities. I feel like this is the biggest reason that I do the podcast and that I'm even more confrontational than the average member at uh, at church. I know that there are uh, certain privileges I have that let me get away with that, but I can't help but feel like the church's institutional behavior is pushing the best of us out of it. I, I sat down about a month ago with a good friend of mine, and she told me that she wasn't sure she'd return to church when this pandemic was over or when the building started opening back up because who she is as a person doesn't seem to gel all that well with the kind of people that the church deems as uh, as acceptable. She's one of the finest people that I know. When I met her at church initially, I breathed a sigh of relief because I found a kindred spirit. It was similar to how I felt when I met you and got to know you, Derek. I felt like I met a kindred spirit and I felt like my presence in the church was validated by yours in it as well. You know what I'm saying? It's that feeling that I chase when I'm at church and I experienced that with her. It's just somebody who was trying to do right by God, someone who was trying to find the go- follow the gospel without forfeiting the best parts of herself. And I know she's not the only one that one feels the way that I do, but also feels the way that she does in that she doesn't know if she's going to come back to church. She's not the only person who feels out of place. She's not the only person who feels like maybe I just don't come to church when this when this mess is over. This past Sunday, I was also uh, invited to participate in a panel on race and the LDS church and where we go from here. But the person who invited me to participate in that discussion, in her initial invitation, she talked about how much she desired to move the conversation forward and make the church a more hospitable place for black folks because she was so tired of watching her black friends leave or slowly trickle away because they didn't feel welcome here anymore. Going back to one of Alma's complaints in verse 11, she saw that because of the conduct of members, black people are not trying to hear those same people talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice mm-hmm. that Alma doesn't complain anywhere about whether or not this is fair or whether the behavior of the Zormites was rational. He simply acknowledges the reality that our behavior as members of the church is the most powerful preaching tool that we have. And if our behavior is questionable, then our message is probably going to be questionable as well. Right, and I I think that the biggest barrier for converts in 
Europe and North America. I can't speak to the rest of the world, but I think in the Western world, a lot of our would-be converts are turned away by three things. One, they're like, your church is racist. Two, it's sexist. And three, it's homophobic. Mm-hmm. Like if we weren't those, th- and there's reasons behind why they think that. But if those reasons weren't there when we fixed those things, we would have many, many more converts. I think we've got so much good in our church that a lot of people look at us and see a light there and say, I wish I could have that. But we have these artificial stumbling blocks, just like what Corey Anton did. He put an artificial stumbling block in the way of other people coming to Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do when we engage in racist, sexist, homophobic, ableist, transphobic stuff. And we need to cut that out. That's that's the whole point. That's why it, why um, Alma takes all these chapters to get him to cut all that out. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that. And, you know, that's another reason why it's probably not sexual sin that's the focus here. Because if you look at all the other doctrinal stuff that he goes into, yeah. it's about their yeah. testimonies. It's not yeah. about – because he doesn't take four chapters to, to talk, talk about, about sex. sex. Like, what is that? <laughs> yeah, he takes these chapters to talk about Christ and talk about – building people's testimonies in Christ. And I think that's that shows that the heart of what the problem was is leading people away from Christ is, is what this whole visiting the sex worker Isabel was really about. Yes, sir. There's one more thing I wanted to point out that, uh, that came up in verse 13 that I thought was really interesting. When you read that verse, he tells Corianton to turn to the Lord with all of his might, mind, and strength, that ye lead away the hearts of no more to do wickedly. And this is what I really like right here but rather return unto them and acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done. I mentioned in, I think it was the last episode, that we don't have a record of Alma apologizing for his own actions as he repented of them, but we see him here counseling Corianton, not really to apologize, but to go to the people he offended and acknowledge his faults and the wrong he's done. And that just really stood out to me as something I would like us to see apply institutionally. I would love to see us acknowledge our fault. I would love to see us acknowledge our failings in the past and how they've impeded not only our growth, but our ability to be effective ministers to both our members and people outside of the church. We know Corianton did repent. Like that is ultimately what we're getting at here, but we know that Corianton ended up repenting and we know that he resumed mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. missionary service. In fact, that, that was... Weirdly enough, the part that hit me the hardest emotionally was getting to the end of uh, 41 or 42 and then seeing Alma reaffirm Corianton's call to the ministry. If I just gotten my butt chewed out for three chapters (laughs) about how messy I was as a missionary and consequently how much I didn't understand about the atonement and about life in general, only to then have the Lord himself or a prophet of the Lord tell me that I am still called to serve, Mm -hmm. like... I would just ball right then and there. Like, I messed up all this stuff. I did all these things wrong. I misunderstood so much, but I still get to do this work. That is so profound and that is so beautiful to me. That is so comforting. And I don't think, and this is the primary issue I have with people saying that the church doesn't offer any apologies or the church was never wrong. Here is the spoiler alert. Even if we owned up to all this stuff, we would still be the Lord's church we would still be on good terms Mm -hmm, with the Lord because mm -hmm. we are trying to do better. We are trying to take to heart all this stuff that is going on, all this stuff that has happened in our past. We can still own it and still be engaged in the work of the Lord. That is the bookend to the story of Corianton in in these chapters. He was still called to the work. And all he had to do 
was take to heart these messages about the atonement, about the mm-hmm. resurrection, mm-hmm. and acknowledge his own failings. Yeah, I think if we as a church made an apology and made reparations for some of these things, that mm-hmm. would be the best public witness to the atonement that we could ever have. Certainly. We would be putting our faith into a practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually want to take some time and zoom out and look at this whole section in Alma 39, verses 8 to 14, because in my head, I thought to myself, can we take this advice to Corianton and use it as a guide for fighting racism within ourselves, our connections, and our world? Okay. And just take all of these verses and look at each of these almost as a recipe for anti-racism. Okay. Starting with verse 8. It says, ye cannot hide your crimes from God. To me... This talks about denial because many of us refuse to admit our complicity in racism. And we have to realize we can't actually hide these things Mm -hmm. for long. Next, they will stand as a testimony against you at the last day. That speaks to me of accountability, that we will be accountable for our racism. We can't run away from it, like I said. Next, in verse 9, repent and forsake your sins. This is the commitment of taking them seriously. So many of us who are white in the church don't take racism seriously or think, oh, it's just there. You know, it's something we have to live with. But repenting and forsaking this is important. Then it says, and go no more after the lusts of your eyes. I take that to be a command towards humility, to realize we could be wrong, that just because something is right in our eyes doesn't mean it's right. And I think that's the the natural instinct of a lot of white people who have not done the work. A lot of their intuition is wrong, right? And so we have to uh, realize that. Next, it says, counsel with your elder brothers in your undertakings. We mm. should look to those with more experience on this issue. Just like the elder brothers, we need to learn from the experience of our friends of color mm. and listen to those in the relevant community and not do it by ourselves. Mm. Next, in verse 11, it says, Suffer not yourself to be led away by any vain or foolish thing. And this speaks to the vigilance you have to have when you do anti-racist work, that you need to um, not get distracted by all those silly things that people will say, those slogans or any memes. Um, But actually, that's what vain means. It means empty. It means that there's nothing there. The hucksters. There's a lot of vain and foolish. Yes. There's a lot of vain and foolish things. (laughs) I'll just say it. The rented Negroes. Don't listen to them. Yeah, don't listen to them. Behold, O my son, how great iniquity you brought upon the Zoramites. For when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. And you've already spoken to this. But what I want to name in addition is that impact can be more important than intent. Because what Corianton did had an impact on the Zoramites. And that was named Mm -hmm. here. Okay. And we have to remember that in our anti-racism work, that impact, that how it actually affects people is way more important than how good I think I am or how woke Mm -hmm. I think I am. Or how well-intended your actions were. Exactly. And then verse 12, therefore I command you, my son, in the fear of God that you refrain from your iniquities. And this talks about a daily commitment. Black Lives Matter isn't you go to a march once and then you're okay, all set for the rest of life. It is a daily commitment to eliminate racism in yourselves and in your community. Right. You know, you have to work on this every day. One of my favorite memes is this picture of Sailor Moon holding a poster that says Black Lives Matter or Black Lives Still Matter, even though it's not on your feet as much. Mm, Yeah. Verse 13, that ye turn to the Lord with all your might, mind, and strength. And you mentioned this. 
And I want to connect that with consecration to our work. Black Lives Matter is the Lord's work. Yes. And if we're consecrating everything we are to what God wants and bringing the good news to all people, the, the you know, the news that all are alike unto God, that's the core of the gospel. Mm-hmm. If that's what we're committed to, we need to consecrate everything we have to God's work in liberating the world from racism. Then that ye lead away the hearts of no more to do wickedly. We have to be an example to others in our anti-racism. Then it says, return unto them and acknowledge your faults and repair that wrong which ye have done. And I, I'll get to this in a second. That's quoting from the um, original manuscript of the Mor- Book of Mormon that has the word repair. So it says, return unto them, the Zormites, and acknowledge your faults and repair that wrong which ye have done. So it's not just a confession, but also reparations. Ain't that interesting. And verse 14, seek not after riches nor the vain things of the world. And that has to do with privilege. Do not seek after accumulating the things of the world. And then, for behold, you cannot carry them with you. And that's an issue of perspective. We really need to take an eternal perspective on this and realize how's history going to look at us later? Are we going to be on the right side of history or not? As a way of summarizing all of these, I'm going to go back to something in verse 9. It says, cross yourself in all these things. Now, a lot of us will think about the Catholics making the sign of the cross on them. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Webster's 1828 dish, dictionary of the word cross as a verb, it talks about to thwart or to obstruct or to hinder or to counteract. And um, here's another pro tip for everyone is Webster's 1828 dictionary is, A, it's a dictionary of American English. It's the first one we have, and it's also almost exactly around the time of the Book of Mormon. So if we want to know what a word meant at the time the Book of Mormon was published, we can look at this reference to see um, how that usage has been documented. So here, cross yourself in all these things. We actually have to work. There's internal work. There's precautions that need to be done, and that's really uh, a guide to anti-racism. I really like how you broke down the anti-racist principles that are present in each verse. Like each that's very really cool, yeah. man. I uh, I love that. I will lift that up. I'm going to remember this forever and ever. I'm so Ew. glad you. I'm so <laughs> glad you caught this because I wouldn't have. And I want to go back and, and talk about something because this is an this is an educational work, and so I'm going to bore people with details. But All right. so I'm we have um, Skousen's critical edition of the text of the Book of Mormon, where he has reconstructed what he likely believes, based on the evidence, to be the original text of the Book of Mormon as dictated by the Prophet Joseph Smith. So our best sources here are the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon, which is a copy of the original because they decided to make a backup because after they lost the 116 pages, they learned their lesson and <laughs> and decided we don't want to send one manuscript to the printer and that's our only manuscript. So they, they reserved the original manuscript and made it as a copy for the printer to use. And then we have the 1830 first edition of the printed Book of Mormon. So these three sources give us our best clues as to what's going on. Now, when you look at Alma 39, verse 13, in the original manuscript, it says very clearly, acknowledge your faults and repair that wrong which ye have done. Now, if you look at the um, at the original manuscript, what happened is there's some ink blots that have dropped on this page, and one ink blot dropped right on the ascender of the P 
in repair to make it look like a T. Mm-hmm. And then also sometimes all of our Cowdery's R's can look like N's because he scoops down a little bit. So if you change the P to a T and the R to an N, you actually get the word retain. So the printer's manuscript, Oliver actually misunderstood his own writing when he created the printer's manuscript and said, acknowledge your faults and retain that wrong which ye have done creating a very, really hard reading. And then in the 1920 edition of the Book of Mormon, they realized retain can't even be the right word. Mm -hmm. So they just deleted the word retain. So it says, acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done. They just took the word out entirely. They just took the word out entirely because they realized it didn't make sense. But then when you go back and look at the original manuscript, it's very clear under that ink blot that it's the word repair. It's not just enough to acknowledge. You have to repair the wrong you've done and this is taught elsewhere in scripture so so you can't just argue with me on this one verse and like well it's not really there but it i think it's really clear to bring these out and i just want to say one more thing about reparations i'm not going to go cite the whole hymn but i love the hymn that says because i have been given much notice it doesn't say because i have earned much (laughs) it says because i have been given much like all of our advantages all of our talents even our whole lives they've been given to us we didn't earn them right Mm -hmm. because i have been given much i too must give i shall divide my gifts from thee with every brother that i see who has the need of help from me later it says i cannot see another's lack and i not share it says i'll show that love by word and deed Thus shall my thanks be thanks indeed so we have a cultural precedent for saying look i've been given stuff it may be unfair. I may have this an advantage that I didn't earn. I still have to share it with others. And that's really the heart of reparations. Mm. Whether or not I caused the problem, I need to share my advantage with others. Yeah. I have a responsibility to fix these disparities, to fix what's wrong. Yo, that's powerful, man. I like that a lot. Well, let's get into Alma 40. Alma 40 then. So, I mean, I got, I got questions generally. What I really like about Alma 40 and something that Alma brings up is the fact that Corianton seems to have worries about this stuff. And I couldn't help but wonder why that was. If I'm looking at this verse here, the first one that like really popped out to me in verse in chapter 40, it was verse nine, because at the end of that, he says, and now concerning this space of time, what becometh? of the souls of men is the thing which I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know. And this is the thing of which I do know. We basically have the doctrine on spirit paradise and spirit prison because Alma inquired diligently about it. Mm -hmm. I want to know what prompted him to ask about it and why he felt he needed to share that with Corianton. Or more specifically, why did Corianton want this info? Why did he need it? What about his particular dilemma that he was experiencing at this time brought on the need for this information about spirit paradise and spirit prison. Something else I considered though, is there are people with very unique questions about life or the gospel and their place in it. And they are capable of having these mysteries. This is what Alma calls it. He calls it, there are many, he says there are many mysteries of God, but there are some mysteries that we can know. And the knowledge that can be unfolded to us as a result of knowing those mysteries can benefit those in our immediate circle like Alma's knowledge did for Corianton, and it can perhaps benefit generations to come. Derek, you talked about the importance of members of the LGBTQ community keeping records. You talked Mm -hmm. about how it was important that 
y'all keep records because they might be scripture one day. They will be scripture one day. And I think that's why this was on my mind. We can have deep mysteries that are relevant to us and our communities be revealed to us. And those precious truths can benefit generations to come, as has Alma's diligence in searching and praying and figuring out what all this business about what happens between death and the resurrection and how that would benefit his family immediately and eventually all of us. Like this unique piece of doctrine that Alma prayed diligently to know is one of the most unique things about Mormon doctrine. We have it now because Alma had a specific question about a specific problem that he had and it was able to bless him and his immediate family and now it has blessed all of us. I just find it very interesting that we basically have one of the most important pieces of Mormon doctrine because Alma just took it upon himself Mm -hmm. to search Mm -hmm. for that knowledge on his own. We are going to have some doctrine that is very precious to us in the church and is going to benefit our membership generally years down the line because there are black folks, there are women, there are queer Mm -hmm. people who have poured over these particular issues that are specifically catered or specifically affecting them and they will receive those answers. They have received those answers already, and they're sharing those answers within their community, and those will eventually benefit the entirety of church membership down the line because they've done the work, and all we gotta do is take advantage of it. You know, we have a lot of businessmen in the church, and I'm not a businessman, you know. I'm I'm actually probably the worst example of a businessman. But there is one thing I know. The worst way to make decisions is have the decision makers have no cost or accountability for that decision. That is, if they can make a decision and they it doesn't affect them at all in any way, they're not gonna make the best decision. If you've got some skin in the game, you might, for example, if you if you tell me, Derek, I want you in, to invest $100 million in the stock market and you get to pick where it goes, and I'm like, okay, fine, I'll just randomly put it somewhere, but if you say, Derek, you get some of that money. I'm like, ooh, I better, I better make some good decisions then. Mm-hmm. Like, because if it doesn't affect me one way or the other, like, what am I gonna do? And I think in our in our case, when we have men making decisions about women, who bear no cost if they get it wrong, or when uh, when straight people make decisions about LGBTs and we're the ones that bear the cost if they get it wrong, that's one of the worst ways of making decisions. And I love how you brought out. That it's the people that are that need to know the answers that are going to be the most likely to get them. Right, and look at us now. Yeah, we have knowledge of the spiritual of the life after death and before resurrection because those who needed these answers did the work of getting them by by going after God themselves. Right, and I and I think the whole point of asking for these things and telling to them to Coriandon at this particular time does two things. One, is it gives him the impulse towards repentance and two it gives him the hope for for eternal life which is what you need to understand repentance because that's his whole goal he, Alma's whole goal here is to get Corianton to get right and to go back out and and finish his mission which gets to the point of all these doctrinal things have a social impact a lot of people think doctrine is just some obscure random thing but when you especially look at how Paul taught in the Bible almost every letter he wrote he talks about the practical implications and relevance of what our doctrine means like if this fact is true about Christ you're going to live completely differently mm-hmm. and let me get into some of that with um, the concept of the resurrection and I'm not going to get it caught up in the details of the resurrection here 
Um, and in fact, Alma doesn't really either. You know, he has some some grace here. He says, well, I don't actually know all the details. He even says, this is my opinion in yeah. some part. <laughs> yeah, and so what that gives us a clue, going back to sort of genre again, that this information is here not to satisfy our curiosity for the details and, and, the, and just the facts. In fact, if you look at Alma's style, it's very clear that he isn't particular about these details. He leaves these things open. But the one thing he doesn't leave open is any question about the centrality of Christ. And the function of this whole block of text in its liter literary context is to have a refining effect on Corianton's life. It's not about information. It's about transformation. Hmm. It's about living differently in this life. It's not about the next life. It's about living differently in this life because of what we know about the next life. Mm. And let's tie this into the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in its historical context. Now, let's now the parallel isn't exactly the same. It's not really at all the same, but there's one detail I want to connect. What would happen if a group of people today in America, in the climate that we're in, started saying that George Floyd has already risen from the dead? For real. In this context, such a declaration would necessarily be a statement about the power and authority of the police and the government that backs that police. Hmm. And this is similar to what James Cone has said, identifying the cross of Jesus Christ with the lynching tree. Yeah. Right? Given that context, to declare the resurrection of an unarmed brown person executed by the state without a fair trial. Now, was I talking about Jesus or was I was talking about George Floyd? <laughs> you were talking about Jesus just then. To say that someone in that position has risen from the dead by the power of God mm -hmm. should shake all of the authorities on earth. Mm -hmm. right? It's to say that Jesus or George Floyd cannot be held back by even death at the hands of the police. And this is a direct commentary about the complete lack of legitimacy of the powers that think they have the authority to kill. Mm -hmm. And let's connect Alma 40 with 1 Corinthians 15, which is probably the most detailed and extended conversation about the resurrection, at least the future resurrection, in, uh, in the New Testament. You know, many people think that 1 Corinthians 15 is all about something in the end times, but they miss Paul's point where it has a direct political and social impact on how we characterize the worldly powers that exist in the Roman Empire or the powers that exist today or in any empire. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 21 to 25 and notice the implication that Paul deliberately brings out. He concludes these things after saying that everyone will be raised. So here we have these verses. For since by man came death... By man all came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now most people stop quoting here, and that's actually, you know Handel's Messiah. There's a famous movement that covers this so well. Mm -hmm. I love that chorus in the Messiah, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about this. Most people stop there, look, and they don't get Paul's literally the next thing he says. He says, but every man... That is, every man will be raised in his own order. Now, this this term, the, the word behind order is tagma, which really is most often a military term. It talks about an order or a division of troops. Okay. And so we've got this, this, even this echo of the Roman Empire here. But every man will be raised in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. That is, they will be raised at his coming. Let's look at verse 24. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Let's talk about this. Right after saying everyone's going to be raised from the dead, Paul spends verses talking about the political implications of this, that all these earthly powers, the police, the Roman Empire, everyone, you know, our current president, all of those will be enemies put under Christ's feet. All of those powers. You know, people miss that the whole point of teaching the resurrection is to give us a context to frame our life here. Isn't that amazing? Quite. And so that's kind of what I want to bring to our conversation of Alma 40 is this isn't just about some, some theoretical knowledge about something that happens at the end time that actually doesn't have any effect on your life. This should change your life. It should change what team you're on. <laughs> Although I'm not changing what team I'm on. <laughs> there it is. There I'm always going to be gay. Yep. But this should change where your allegiances are, knowing that all power, all authority, all rule will be completely subjugated by the king of kings who was raised from the dead after being executed by the state. It was like a giant middle finger to those institutions. Yeah. How are they going to kill a brown man without a trial and then he gets raised from the dead as if to say, can't keep me down, like no power, especially this police brutality, white supremacy, whatever you want to mm -hmm. name that particular power. That's not going to trump the power of Christ. Yeah, and to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. Ooh. You know, Lord and Son of God and Savior were, were actual titles for the Roman Emperor. We've got these on coins. We've got these on inscriptions. People using these words, politically charged words, to refer to the Roman Empire. And Paul's taking all those those buzzwords and applying them to Christ. Mm -hmm. This is powerful stuff here. And... Uh, um. We should never think about the resurrection of Jesus or our own resurrection ever again. Um, and that's, that's actually why Rome crucified Jesus, because he was a threat and, and persecuted Jesus' followers because of these implications. And I have to say, and this doesn't minimize the sorrow, but one day George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, they all will rise from the dead, for real. Mm -hmm. We will undo what these, what what the police have done, what mm. our government uh, injustice, and now it doesn't fully undo it, right? Because we've got sorrow in this life, and that that should not be minimized. Right. But there's a sense in which the victory is ours. Mm -hmm. We just have to wait for the unfolding of it. Mm. Powerful man. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Before we move on to these uh, housekeeping items, one more thing to let y'all know. Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's Dialogue journal.com slash podcast network uh derek where can people find us you can find us at beyond the block podcast.com 
and also Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you should definitely check out our Instagram because we've been getting a lot of followers and we're getting more active on on Instagram. Yes. Special thanks to our uh, social media person, Eden Wynn. Don't know where we'd be without her right now, but we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. I want to uplift Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh's class again. Oh, yes. So I heard that the spots are filling up. So if you really want to get on in on this, do that quickly. It starts August the 4th. Mm. And I'll be in that class. And it's going to be great. So. It's going to be dope. I'm going to put the uh, Eventbrite link to that in the notes mm-hmm. if any of you feel so inclined to sign up. But I would highly recommend it. It is more than likely going to be life-changing. I said it last week, but I'll just reaffirm it. Doc, Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh is easily one of the finest theologians out there. And we get to claim her as one of our own. Like she is, she just happens to be LDS and a black woman. But, you know, she's one of the finest minds on bridging those gaps between or highlighting the intersections between race and the LDS church. And it's phenomenal. Like I I just can't speak highly enough of what this class is likely to be. Sign up for it if you can. And also get her book. We've talked about her book earlier in the the year when we were using it. Um, But she has the Book of Mormon for the least of these, a commentary. And only the first volume is out, which is why we haven't been using her work uh, recently it's gonna be a while before that second volume yeah, comes out but check out the first <laughs> volume and then wait with anticipation for this for the next volumes yes okay and uh just wanted to highlight real quick some of our new collaborators this week those who have uh, donated nicely to our uh, glow page uh, jennifer muller and uh, gabrielle honda hope i'm saying that right y'all are the only people who have given recently who have let us know who you are Mm-hmm. So, you know, just wanted to lift you guys up real quick and thank you for uh, for your uh, contribution and collaboration with us on this project. We really appreciate it. We'll leave a link to our Glow page in the uh, notes as well. I've said enough about what we're doing there. So, y'all, if you've been listening for us for a while, you know what it's about. We'll just keep dropping the link in so you guys have an easy access way to contribute if you guys want. If you don't have anything to contribute, just share our Glow page with your friends. Uh, Let us know and we'll make you part of the Collaborator Facebook group where we're having conversations about who we're going to be having on. You'll be able to get access to our study notes. You'll be able to uh, give feedback and ideas for the show and a lot more. Just be able to see what we're up to, uh, basically. So get on that. Finally, we want to thank our friends uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show and uh, David Doyle for editing our transcripts. Really appreciate you both for the work that you're uh, doing for the show, as well as uh, everybody else who has dropped us some affirming messages through our various Mm -hmm. social medias and let us know what you're doing to improve the communities that you guys are in uh, using the resources that the podcast has provided you. for. So thank you for sharing that too. Am I missing anything, Derek? Nope, that's it as far as I know. Very good. Then thank you guys for joining us till we meet again next week.